This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. We stand now at the half-century mark in a social experiment that has involved virtually every American, whether or not she or he has wanted to be involved in it, affirmative action. The idea was to make things right, to correct the legacy of minorities, and at that time in particular African Americans, being denied a seat at the table. A remedy that then and ever since has been controversial, but no more so than when it has been applied to the question of who gets accepted into America's elite universities or not. In university admissions, the debate and the argument has been that affirmative action has mostly achieved and is mostly achieving its goals or that it is not. Well, that sounds like the basis for a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan. We are at the Harvard Law School's Ames courtroom. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. Affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. Our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience here at the Harvard Law School votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Ladies and gentlemen, please let's welcome Gail Harriet. And Gail, you are a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. You're a professor of law at the University of San Diego Law School. Um, In 1996, you co-chaired the campaign for Proposition 209. That was a California proposition that banned race and gender-based preferences in public education and in state hiring. It passed uh, very famously. But voters uh, may once again get the chance to vote on its key provisions. And my question to you, if they are given the chance to vote again, seeing what they've seen now, do you think that voters will uphold it a second time around? I think they will. And do you think it's going to be a close call? Direct democracy is a tricky business. You never know. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Gail Harriet. Thank you. And Gail, your partner is... My partner is the very talented economist, Rick Sander. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Sander. Rick, welcome. You are also arguing for this motion, affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. You are a professor of law at UCLA. Uh, And in 2004, you published a controversial study that asserts that black law students are actually hurt by affirmative action. And to test out this theory, you filed a request for the records of the State Bar of California because you wanted their data, but they wouldn't give it to you, so you had to sue for its release. The California Supreme Court said yes in 2013. So have you seen the data? Not quite yet. The court said that uh, there is a public right for academics or anyone in the public to seek this data, but they also said that there have to be privacy safeguards met, and we're still trying to work those out. Timeline on this? I'd say between one month and seven years. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's the team arguing for the motion. And now the team arguing against the motion. Affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. We have two debaters arguing it. First, let's please welcome Randall Kennedy. 
Randall Kennedy, this is a hometown crowd for you. You are the Michael R. Klein Professor of Law at the Harvard Law School. You're the author of six books, including Sellout, The Politics of Racial Betrayal. You're the author of a book with the N-word in the title. And most recently, you are the author of Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law. You've been described as being something of an iconoclast, and it's been said that your classroom, like your books, can be contentious. So is it your intent to push people's buttons? Sometimes. Okay. (laughs) And your partner is Randall Kennedy. My partner is Ted Shaw of the Columbia University Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, Ted Shaw. And Ted... You're also arguing against the motion that affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. Uh, You've been involved in two landmark Supreme Court affirmative action cases. You played a key role uh, in drafting the admissions policy upheld in Grutter versus Bollinger. Uh, You were lead counsel for black and Latino interveners in Gratz versus Bollinger. And in 2003, writing for the majority in Grutter, back then Justice O'Connor on the Supreme Court had predicted that 25 years from now, racial preferences would no longer be needed So, Ted, is that plausible? Well, I always wondered where that number came from. But in any event, after Justice O'Connor left the bench, she and one of her former clerks authored an article in which she repudiated that statement. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Ted Shaw. Thank you, Ted Shaw. So our motion is affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. Let's start with round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. And up first to argue for this motion, affirmative action on campus does more harm than good, Gail Harriet, a professor of law at the University of San Diego and a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, Gail Harriet. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Rick and I are here to make a very narrow point. Race preferential admissions policies are doing far more harm than good. The very large preferences uh, that are now routinely employed by colleges and universities produce fewer, not more, black scientists, black engineers, and black medical doctors. They produce fewer black college professors and very likely fewer black lawyers. We are talking epic policy failure. Um, One consequence of widespread race preferential policies is that underrepresented minorities end up distributed among colleges and universities in patterns very different uh, from their white and Asian counterparts. When the highest school on the academic ladder uh, relaxes academic standards in order to admit more minority students, the schools one rung down must do the same if they are to get minority students. The problem is thus passed down to the third rung on the ladder, which responds similarly. As a result, underrepresented minority students are concentrated at the bottom of most selective schools. And efforts to, to remedy that problem end up causing credentials gaps up and down the pecking order. The problem is that entering credentials matter. Students whose academic credentials are well below the average for the college and university they are attending will usually earn grades that are similar. No serious supporter of affirmative action denies this. The strongest evidence of backfire comes from science and engineering. Contrary to what some people think, College-bound African-American and Hispanic students are just as interested as white students in majoring in science and engineering, actually a little more so, the numbers suggest. But these are difficult majors, and many students of all races abandon that ambition. 
Um, it's not surprising that those students, again of any race, who give up on science and engineering disproportionately have lower entering academic credentials. But what some do find surprising is that four in-depth published studies all demonstrate that part of the effect is relative. An aspiring science major who, who attends a school where she's in the middle or towards the top of her class in entering credentials is much more likely to persevere and ultimately succeed than is an otherwise identical student, same entering academic credentials, who attends a school where her academic credentials put her towards the bottom of the class. Put differently, preferences hurt. They don't help. A similar study by Stephen Cole and Eleanor Barber um, shows that minority students who attend colleges where they're entering credentials put them at the bottom of the class, do not aspire to go on to graduate school and to become college professors um, in the same numbers as their identically credentialed minority counterparts who are attending less elite schools. None of the results in any of these studies has been controversial. No one has rebutted any of it. Gail Harriet, I'm sorry, your time is up, and thank you very much. Great. That speaks volumes. Thank you, Gail Harriet. <clears throat> our motion is affirmative action on campus does more harm than good, and our next debater is going to speak against this motion. He's Randall Kennedy, the Michael R. Klein Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and author of the book For Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Randall Kennedy. Let's be clear about what we defend we defend conscious efforts to ensure the presence on our campuses of students affiliated with groups that, in the absence of special efforts, would be excluded or consigned to a negligible, isolating status. We do not feel obligated to defend all affirmative action programs across the United States. We do not support stupid affirmative action. Educational institutions have a wide array of goals that are advanced by affirmative action. All seek to create excellent environments for teaching and learning. They maintain that racial diversity acquaints students with unfamiliar perspectives and sentiments, and that it assists in preparing students for an increasingly cosmopolitan country and demanding world. Some educational institutions see it as part of their mission to do what they reasonably can to assist in rectifying past racial wrongs. These institutions engage in affirmative action to assist racial minority candidates who, though qualified in absolute terms, might otherwise lose out in competition for admission with those advantaged by racial or other sorts of illicit but deeply entrenched privilege. Some educational institutions see it as part of their mission to correct or offset invidious discrimination that constitutes an invisible headwind that impedes racial minorities, women, and others who still face pervasive societal bias. These programs have served to encourage students and prospective students who might otherwise have been discouraged, mistakenly believing that the monopolies of the past were unchangeable. Some educational institutions see it as part of their mission to facilitate racial integration. One group that has pressed this point with notable vigor 
are leaders of the armed forces. They have repeatedly argued that racial diversity in the officer corps of the military is essential as a matter of national security, and that at present the military cannot achieve an officer corps that is both excellent and racially diverse unless the service academies use race-conscious recruiting and admissions policies. That affirmative action supports the educational missions of institutions of higher education, that it supports their ambition to assist with the task of correcting past and present injustices, that it facilitates racial, gender, class, and other sorts of needed integration is more than enough to justify its continuation. Please join with me in supporting affirmative action. Thank you, Randall Kennedy. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. You have heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Debating for this motion that affirmative action on campus does more harm than good, let's introduce Richard Sander. He is a professor of law at UCLA School of Law and co-author of the book Mismatch, How Affirmative Action Hurts Students It's Intended to Help and Why Universities Won't Admit It. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Sander. Let's compare law school and medical school. Now, we're going to get more into the Q&A about the actual merits of law school mismatch, but, uh, but assume that, that I'm right for the moment, that if you compare two students who go to different law schools, one with large preferences and one without, the one who receives large preferences is two or three times more likely to fail the bar exam. That event happens after the student has graduated from law school, and students who fail the bar, as one scholar has put it, are marooned. Let's compare that with medical school. Medical school, there's also something like the bar exam. It's called the national boards. That's taken halfway through medical school up to the second year. If a student fails the national boards, then at many medical schools, uh, they're put in an academic support program. And there's some evidence that that works. So that means that affirmative action might be beneficial if we sort of provide the right institutional support to go with it. That generally is lacking. Another example is when we think about science mismatches, Gail brought up. As she said, there are now four peer-reviewed studies that show very clearly that uh, if you receive a large preference into a college or university, you're 50 to 75% more likely to drop out of your science career on your way to gain a new BA. That has been shown to happen when you have a very large preference. What we don't know enough about, because we don't have enough data yet, is what happens with the small preference. Suppose the size of the preference is uh, not the equivalent of 300 SAT points, but the equivalent of 50 SAT points. It's possible that smaller preferences don't cause that much of a mismatch effect and that the other positive effects of affirmative action, like having a more challenging atmosphere and having peers who are really talented, might outweigh. So I think think we need to admit that that there are are trade-offs, there are balances. So why do I think that on balance you should vote for the proposition? First of all, there's no longer any reasonable doubt that very large preferences have negative consequences. That's now been shown in about 20 different uh, peer-reviewed studies by um, over 20 different academics. And when I say large, I mean really large. The typical 
beneficiary of a preference, well, the typical African-American student at an American law school has credentials that put them at below 99% of the white students. That's a large preference. Second, colleges and universities are locked into a pattern of institutional dishonesty. I don't think college leaders are intrinsically dishonest people, but the prevailing ideology of affirmative action makes it difficult and even hazardous for them to speak, up, speak out about these issues or to really look at the effect and, and critically examine the effect of the programs that they're operating. There's a pattern of, of institutional unwillingness to deal with uncomfortable facts. That suggests that there's a need for reform. Finally, we have almost no transparency about what goes on in higher education. Schools do not provide information unless they're forced to about their actual admissions practices. They don't provide information about outcomes. When data comes out, it's either because of a lawsuit or because someone trusted as a reliable insider decides to write about the problem. So we have this pattern of problems that suggests a crying need for reform. That's why I urge you to support the proposition. Thank you, Rick Sander. Our motion is affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. And here to speak against this motion, Ted Shaw. He's a professor of professional practice in law at Columbia Law School. And he's former director counsel and president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Ladies and gentlemen, Ted Shaw. First, let us define what affirmative action is. It is a conscious attempt to admit students from groups that have been underrepresented to campuses and universities uh, at selective institutions. We can talk about preferences. We can use a lot of loaded terms. But that is the essence of affirmative action. When we talk about harm, what kind of harm are we talking about and to whom? This discussion has proceeded, this debate has proceeded, focusing almost exclusively on African-American students, which echoes the continuing reality in our country, which is that most of the heat when it comes to issues of race is felt along that traditional black-white line. There's lots of affirmative action that has existed and continues to exist quite aside from the issues of race impacting African-Americans. No one talks about stigma uh, being visited upon women who have been beneficiaries of conscious efforts to open up opportunities in higher education. No one talks about stigma being visited upon white students who may have lower GPAs than Asian-American students or lower test scores. The only stigma conversation is a stigma with respect to African-Americans. And I submit to you that that fact reflects that we continue to struggle even in 2014 with the age-old rumors of intellectual inferiority of African-Americans. Now, there are tremendous differences between students who are educated in poverty-impacted inner-city urban high schools and students who attend privileged high schools. So what we're talking about is choosing among qualified students. The question isn't whether or not, or it is solely a question of whether or not students all have the same credentials. 
The question is whether or not institutions can choose among qualified students. It shouldn't be a surprise that African-American students who attend schools that are academically uh, challenged may not have the same criteria. Nor should it be a surprise that given our long history in this country, in which even today, right now as we stand here, nine out of ten days of African-American presence in what's now the United States have been spent in either Jim Crow, segregation, or slavery, shouldn't be a surprise that there are still differences that we're struggling to overcome. So uh, I often think about the fact that, like Professor Kennedy, I am unapologetically a beneficiary of affirmative action. Would I have felt more comfortable in the public housing project? I grew up in the Bronx knowing that I didn't get the benefit of affirmative action, uh, but I had my integrity intact. I don't think so. Ted Shaw, thank you very much. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and you, from you in our live audience. We have heard arguments from both sides now. The side arguing for this motion, affirmative action on campus does more harm than good, Gail Harriet and Richard Sander, they argue that uh, it backfires and hurts those that it is meant to help, that minority students can find themselves boosted into an academic pool in which they're in over their heads, and that they fail, therefore, that they become discouraged, and that if they fail, it means that racial, racial preferences as a tool have failed. The side arguing against the motion, Randall Kennedy and Ted Shaw, they're um, saying that the case uh, for good comes from not only the impact of uh, affirmative action on a wider student body, but that also, the, in a sense, the symbolism of uh, affirmative action in itself encourages people who might never have attempted to get into an academic, uh, high, set, high academic setting to reach for something they may not have believed in before. Actually, I'd like to ask you one more time to define what you mean by large preferences, Gail. You said we would be graduating more engineers and more scientists from minority groups, except that we were not because we're giving them such a great preference. What is a great preference? Well, I think the example from the University of Michigan is a good one. It was an entire letter grade on the GPA or alternatively 300 points on on the combined SAT. Um, Okay. So I just want to make sure that we all know what what it is we're talking about and what this disagreement might be about on this issue. So I want to go to the other side. Maybe I'll take it to Randall Kennedy. So your opponents are arguing there's this dynamic by which uh, a minority student who is not as academically prepared perhaps as measured by SAT scores or GPA, shows up in a place where he's up against some tough competition, and it kind of breaks him, breaks his spirit, he drops out. I don't know if you want to take that on or the numbers or what, but if you could respond to it. Sure, I'd be happy to respond. And there are a couple of responses. First, my adversaries make reference to um, studies that posit the mismatch thesis, which has been posited for a long time. Maybe there's something to it. We should not accept this, however, as an uncontroversial proposition. The fact of the matter is that there are people who have studied the same phenomena who disagree very much uh, with uh, Professor Sander and others who have made the sort of claims uh, that you've heard. It's, it's, it's controversial. It's not, it's not clear-cut. Furthermore, I'm willing to stipulate, for the sake of argument, that what they say is true then the question becomes, what of it? My opponents have 
a certain strange solicitude. They want to save African-American and Latino uh, students from getting the um, invitation to selective institutions. No one is forcing anyone to attend these institutions. If they don't want to go, they don't have to go. Who would like to take that? I'll take it. Okay, Rick Sander. So we may be able to resolve this debate and just come to agreement. I, I will agree with, with Randall that, uh, that I, I withdraw all my objections to affirmative action if colleges and universities will adopt the following practice. When they accept someone for admission, they also provide a detailed statement of how that student's uh, credentials predict their performance. If they're an engineering applicant, tell them the past record of students with identical credentials who have actually achieved an engineering degree at that school. If they want to go to law school, tell them what are the chances that a student with their credentials has passed the bar on the first attempt. If that information is provided, then you're right. All that affirmative action is doing is increasing the range of opportunities. The problem is that schools don't do that. Uh, They won't disclose data on what they're doing. They tell students that everyone has the same chance of, of, uh, of success. Everyone is equally qualified and will have the same outcomes. These things are manifestly not true. And you don't have to take my word for it. There was actually a study done at Duke where a professor looked at the, the information that the university had internally, went to students and said, okay, if you had this information, what would your enrollment decision be? And they made different decisions. Ted Shaw. Well, first... These propositions that our adversaries have articulated today are challenged. They are very much being contested. But even if we acknowledge, as we must, that there is a gap between performance on standardized tests, does that acknowledgement then lead us inevitably to the answer that affirmative action is doing more harm on campus than good? We're talking about the integration of campuses. We're talking about equal opportunity on campuses. And if we want to look to evidence, look to the President of the United States, the Attorney General, the CEO of American Express, look to the two Supreme Court justices who are at one African-American, one Latina, uh, look to uh, African-Americans, look to Latinos who have graduated within the last couple of generations from selective institutions, including this one, and there's massive evidence of the success of what we call affirmative action. All right, let's take that point to Gail Harriet. Um, well, um, first of all, no one has ever rebutted the studies that I cited, uh, not anyone. Um, and sure, there are plenty of people um, who have benefited in some way. I don't know whether any of the people that you listed are among them because I don't know what the counterfactual is. Uh, I suspect uh, that you and Randall would have been very successful even without preferences, assuming that you got preferences, and I don't know that. One interesting thing is that there's one bit of evidence um, from Wait, let me first... just stop you. In 1950, these guys would have done as well as they have done in 1980, 1990, 2000? Yeah, they may have. And, um, Ted Shaw? Uh, To be clear, I didn't claim to be the beneficiary of preferences. That's a loaded term. I claim to be a beneficiary of affirmative action, and I restate that. I am, unapologetically. The light of opportunity did not shine in neighborhoods like the one I came from until people consciously took action to do it. It didn't happen serendipitously, and it doesn't mean that 
I or people like me are not qualified. So uh, I, I appreciate you saying I would have made it anyway. I don't, I don't accept that. I mean, I like to think that maybe it was true, but the fact is that what that does is obscure the structural inequality that has existed in our country and has built into our country. And, and we still have not ridded ourselves of that structural inequality. Rick Sander, do you want to respond or would you like to move to another question? I, I, I would slightly modify Gail's statement. There, there are many good studies that say that uh, preferences can have net positive effects. When those studies are examined, they're generally focusing on secondary outcomes, like graduation rates. The things that we're talking about with mismatch are things like learning, competition, grades, attrition from a science track, and so on, things that uh, are directly related to mismatch. Graduation rates, for example, are, are more manipulable by, by university policies. A law school or a college can decide that they want to get their graduation rate up to 97%. So if you look at some secondary outcomes, I think the debate is more mixed. But it really is overwhelming how on the literature of primary mismatch effects, it's essentially undisputed. Brenda Kennedy. Um, I would like very much to take Professor Sander up on his comment about how he would withdraw his objections if more information was presented about, you know, uh, 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 what happens with a student with this background getting into the school. Now, in taking you up on that, what you have implicitly said, I take it, is that actually with more information, you are fine with affirmative action. And in fact, in your comments, you said over and over again, you're not really so much against affirmative action, you're just against excessive affirmative action. Audience, I want you to be very attentive to the disjunction within the side of my adversaries. Because one speaker is totally against affirmative action and speaks in terms of laissez-faire, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Of course, we know where the chips will fall. Professor Sanders' position seems to be considerably different. His is more of, well, there's too much affirmative action. His is a tweaking position. Let me bring in Rick. And not so, Rick you know, we're arguing that affirmative action does more harm than good, not that it has to do more harm than good. We're saying that if you fix it, it could work pretty well. And that goes to this, this issue about kind of, you know, wh what do we mean by preferences or what do we mean by affirmative action? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, Ted, that uh, racial preferences is a loaded term, right? The, the, the preferences received by legacies are much smaller on average than preferences based on class, based on race, excuse me. Preferences received by uh, women are virtually non-existent. And class has not been a significant subject of, of preferences. There, the, the typical uh, college gives something like 20 or 30 times the amount of weight to race as they do to class, if they consider class at all. Rick, but you're, you're, one of your opponents stipulated that, that maybe you're right. Maybe you're right in terms of the dynamic you're describing in the mismatch. But that even given that, the good outweighs the harm. And I want to ask you, what's wrong with that formulation? Why is the harm that you're describing, that your side has stipulated to, way heavier than, than that other good? Because the, the pervasive tendency of selective institutions is to, is to grossly go overboard. The focus of what schools do, the way that they set their goals, is not based on how large a preference should we use to maximize the width of the pipeline, to sort of maximize the aggregate beneficial social good. It's how do I have enough 
cosmetic diversity in my entering freshman class so that I'm not going to get hassled. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. A reminder of where we are, we have two teams of two debating this motion. Affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. On the side arguing for the motion, Gail Harriet and Rick Sander. On the side arguing against the motion, Randall Kennedy and Ted Shaw. We are in the middle of the question and answer section. So let's go to some questions. If you just raise your hand, I will find you right down front, sir. And just wait till the microphone reaches you. If you can just tell us who you are as well. Charles Freed. And I'd like to ask... I'd like to ask two back-to-back extremely short questions. I would you're like you're to so ask, breaking our rule, but I'm going to give you a pass I'm going to ask Richard one. and Gail what they think this country would look like today if 40 years ago and for the last 40 years there had not been any affirmative action. And I'd like to ask Randy and Ted what this country will look like 40 and 50 years from now, if we continue having affirmative action the same way we do now. Rick Sander. So I, I think that in the early years, in the 1960s and 70s, it was important to do whatever we could. We had to convince minorities that the doors that had been closed were now opening. But if you want to see what would be the effect now or in recent decades, look at the effect of Prop 209 in California. Californians adopted a ban on the use of race in college admissions. The result of the University of California was a dip in, a substantial dip in uh, minority enrollments at the most elite schools, a temporary dip in black enrollment at UC as a whole. But within four or five years, the schools had launched enough outreach efforts to reverse that and to be above their pre-209 minority enrollment levels. In the meantime, students had cascaded to less elite institutions, and they were completing science degrees at a much higher rate. They were graduating at a much higher rate. They were especially graduating in four years at a much higher rate. They had higher grades. So the overall effects of this quasi-natural experiment are resoundingly positive. All right, let me go to the other side, and you're, this is your chance not to rebut this, but to respond to the question. Yes, I think that it was an excellent uh, question from uh, Charles Freed, and my response is that if we continue to have affirmative action as we presently have it, we will continue to see the uh, further desegregation of strategic institutions in American life. The fact of the matter is that in institutions like the one we're in right now, in many other elite institutions in American life, we are just seeing the fruits of desegregation. We still have a long way to go, and I hope that affirmative action will continue. And it seems to me, over the next you know, half century, we will continue to see what we have been seeing for the past 40 or 50 years, which is a much fairer American life. More questions? Uh, my name is Danielle Kim. I'm a student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, I'd like to make the point that Asian Americans also face significant racism in society today, yet they're at an enormous disadvantage in gaining admission to highly selective colleges. So under affirmative action, do you believe that Asian Americans have an equal opportunity to succeed? 
Randy Kennedy. Um, it all depends on what sort of Asian Americans we're talking about. Some Asian American groups, it, they may be harmed. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, I think, actually face a somewhat different footing in the competition for admission to selective universities than people from other parts of Asia, the Hmong, Filipinos, others. I think it's a complicated uh, scenario. Do you care? I'm sorry? Do you, do you care? I, I, I'm not being facetious. In the terms of, of your saying, you know, maybe some people will be harmed on the current thing, but the, for the larger sake, the system should largely operate as it is for the foreseeable uh, future. Do you care that there are harms to somebody who, in the category you just described? As far as I'm concerned, in our discussion of this, it's not, frankly, about individual desert or individual harm so long as it's not invidious, so long as it's not, you know, trying to stick it to a group because of group membership. I think we'd like to make some short comments. One is that we've generally disavowed the idea that we ought to make contributions based on race. It's this very narrow focus on race that leads us into this bind. Because the logical implication of having large racial preferences for blacks, Hispanics, and American Indians is that there should be a large racial penalty for Asian Americans. And I don't think it exists everywhere, but it exists in enough schools to to be really repugnant. And if we focused affirmative action more on pipeline questions, more on who is having difficulty uh, getting access, then there would be dramatically more focus in this, in this whole discussion on class, which is generally ignored by universities, and not on race. And if we were focusing more on individual characteristics, we wouldn't have this bind of treating Asian Americans the way we used to treat Jewish Americans. Ted Tor. So, well, we're talking about selective institutions in which... African-American students, again, where most of this heat is being felt. I think we acknowledge that, right? Uh, we're talking about percentages of maybe three, four, five low single digits in many of the institutions. Uh, it's a lot of fuss given how few African-Americans exist at these institutions. Now, having said that, the proposition that affirmative action does more harm than good is an extraordinary proposition, given the, uh, the work that still remains uh, in front of us with respect to desegregating and integrating our institutions in American society, notwithstanding the age of Obama. Okay, so, I want to so, 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 let Gail respond to that because uh, she hasn't had a chance to speak. And immediately after that, I want to start going to questions from the audience. And uh, to remind you, just raise your hand. A microphone will be brought to you. Stand up. State your name. Ask a, a question. Gail, go ahead. I guess I have a number of comments here. First of all, on the disclosure issue that we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights proposed um, that law schools disclose these issues. It must have been something like seven years ago. What happened? We got absolute deafening si- silence uh, from the law schools. Uh, I doubt very much that we can get law school deans to disclose this. Um, but again, as a compromise ma- matter, I would think that's, that's pretty good if we could do that right now. Otherwise, I'd just like to convince you that the mismatch uh, literature is in fact correct. Uh, I very much uh, doubt that, that most people consider it more important to have more um, Ivy League grads uh, who are black than it is to have more black doctors, more do- black scientists, more, more black engineers. I feel like I'm standing here with a key, um, and here's the key. Here's how we can get many more black doctors, many more black engineers, many more black scientists. 
more black lawyers, more black college professors. And I just need someone to take that key and unlock the door. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard. One more question. Right down front, thanks. Um, so it seems to me that this side has made the case that affirmative action in its current state is ineffective or does more harm than good. So my question would be to the opposition, do you think that affirmative action, if we accept this motion, that, as they put it, that in its current state it does more harm than good, do you think that in its current state everything is fine, we're good, uh, okay. currently we can just continue on as, as is? Uh, Randy Kennedy. I think that um, improvements can always be made. And I think that the point about disclosure is a fine point. Does, does affirmative action have difficulties? Does affirmative action have problems? Does affirmative action have risks? Does affirmative action have costs? Yes, it does. It's always a question of compared to what. I maintain that affirmative action, even with its blemishes, has been better for our country than the most likely alternative, which was nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. On to round three, closing statements from each debater in turn. First, to summarize her position in support of this motion, affirmative action on campus does more harm than good, Gail Harriet, professor of the University of San Diego School of Law and member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, Gail Harriet. Thank you. This should not be a liberal or conservative issue. Uh, And it didn't used to be. No less a liberal icon than Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas made an eloquent plea on behalf of of, of colorblind admissions policies back in the early 1970s. My personal favorite among the liberals on this issue uh, was California Supreme Court Justice uh, Stanley Mosk. As a Superior Court judge and later as California Attorney General, Mosk stuck his neck out for civil rights on many occasions back in the 1940s uh, when it wasn't so popular, back when it could be a career killer. Mosk called race preferential admissions the sacrifice of principle for the sake of dubious expediency. Um, The research that we have been talking about today was not a bolt from the blue. Uh, University of Chicago sociologist James Davis had concluded in the mid-1960s that college students who received preferential treatment would have gone on to better careers had they attended somewhat less um, elite institutions. He wasn't writing about affirmative action. Back in those days, it was mostly legacies and athletes that were getting getting, uh, the preferential treatment. Uh, But if it doesn't work for legacies and athletes, why would it work for anybody? Racial preferences don't work. We have lost precious time. Let's not make it worse by ignoring the evidence. I urge you to vote in favor of the motion. Thank you, Gail Harriet. And a uh, round of applause for that. Let's... Our motion is affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Randall Kennedy. He is professor at Harvard Law School and author of the book For Discrimination. Ladies and gentlemen, Randall Kennedy. A good illustration of the way in which um, affirmative action has been helpful is suggested by the actions even of people who say that they are against affirmative action. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan said he was against affirmative action. 
But candidate Ronald Reagan was asked, if you become president of the United States, what will you do when it comes to appointing someone to the Supreme Court of the United States? Ronald Reagan said, if you make me president of the United States, I will appoint a woman to the Supreme Court. And he did. Was that affirmative action? Yes, that was affirmative action. And in fact, when he appointed Sandra Day O'Connor, there were people who said, well, you know, what about this? You said that, you know, gender and race and that sort of thing shouldn't matter. He said, to his credit, we simply cannot have a Supreme Court of the United States that has a male monopoly. It's just illegitimate. There is a reason why every presidential candidate since the cabinet, since the cabinet of John F. Kennedy, has had people of color in it. The same thing goes for the strategic institutions in American life, including our campuses. It will simply not do in this day and age to have campuses that have discrete uh, groups who've been disadvantaged excluded from them. Randall Kennedy, I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you very much. Our motion is affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. And here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Richard Sander. He is professor at uh, UCLA School of Law and co-author of the book Mismatch. Richard Sander. Well, I I hope, Gail, I have persuaded you that that we're approaching this not as an ideological matter, but as as one of pragmatism. Um, I care deeply about these issues. I've worked on civil rights issues most of my adult life. I have an African-American college-aged son and a, and a first-grade daughter who goes to uh, central Los Angeles schools in a school that's uh, half free lunch. I care deeply about these issues. And, and part of what informs my perspective is that when I look at higher education leaders, when I look at the folks that I know and have worked with, I see them as people who also have goodwill and are committed to racial justice and are not feeling beholden to affirmative action as something that they have to do for... Uh, greater racial equality. They feel lots of other pressures, but I'm very confident that, that uh, if we reform affirmative action, they will try to find new ways to expand opportunity. That's exactly what's happened in California under Prop 2 and 9. There's been much closer collaboration between uh, colleges and the K-12 through pipeline since Prop 2 and 9 passed. There's been much greater focus on uh, class-based affirmative action. Those things happen when you, when you restructure the incentives. And what I'm arguing for, I think what Gail is arguing for, is that we need to restructure the incentives that are behind the current preference system. We can do a better job of figuring out where students end up in college and producing not only better outcomes for them, but for their campuses. Thank you, Rick Sander. Our motion, affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. And here with the last word to argue against the motion, Ted Shaw professor at Columbia Law School and former director, counsel, and president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, ladies and gentlemen, Ted Shaw. Let me start by saying that there is stigmatization of African Americans in America, and it hasn't been the consequence of affirmative action. Uh, It's part of our long history, our struggle Uh, with what's been this country's greatest demon. And the great irony, in my view, is that some people conclude from that horrible history, uh, as a consequence, 
we should not think, talk, or do anything consciously about race. Much of this discussion, whether intentionally or not, echoes, as I said earlier, uh, the rumors of inferiority which continue to exist in this country. It is, in my view, an uh, inexplicable uh, statement to say that in 21st century America, African Americans ought to go to lesser institutions and there'll be more, therefore, of them uh, coming out as doctors, physicians, lawyers, uh, scientists, etc. I don't get that argument, uh, and I think it is just factually wrong. It isn't about whether we see race. The question is, having seen it, how do we treat one another? Whether we include one another or whether we exclude one another. Thank you, Ted Shaw. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. It's been a pleasure for Intelligence Squared U.S. to, uh, to, to be in association with four debaters who brought to this stage not only the passion but also the decency and the civility to respect one another's views uh, and something that can be very deeply personal. So I just want to invite a round of applause to all of them for the way that they, the way that they did this. Okay, so I have the results now. Remember, we had you vote once before the debate and once again after the debate, and the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage point terms will be declared the winner. The motion is this. Affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. Before the debate, 22% of you agreed with the motion, 48% were against, and 30% were undecided. So those are the first results. The teams now need to move those numbers. Let's look at the second vote. On this motion, affirmative action on campus does more harm than good. The team arguing for the motion on their second vote, it's 36%. They went from 22% to 36%. They've picked up 14 percentage points. That is the number to beat. The side now arguing against the motion. In their first vote, it was 48%. Their second vote is 55%. They pulled seven percentage points, but that is not enough. The side arguing for the motion, affirmative action on campus does more harm than good, has won this debate on our rules. We congratulate them, and thank you from Intelligence Squared. And me, John Donvan, we'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was presented in partnership with Harvard Law School. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.